Welcome to the Board Shorts podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Cook, and I'm here with another easy to digest dose of valuable board and company director related information designed to help you to get on board and thrive in the boardroom. Welcome to episode 40. My guest today is Carolyn Grant. She is an advisor, author, and founder of 6P's Marketing and Engagement, an agency creating tools, frameworks, and training founded in neuroscience to provide insights to leaders to improve critical decision-making, team performance, customer advocacy, and innovation. Their aim is to create high-performing, valued teams and mitigate personal and organizational risk. Carolyn is the author of Legacy Leadership, the emergence of a new model of leadership after more than a decade of crisis. And she is the creator and publisher of the recently completed People and Science Boardroom Psychological Safety Benchmark for 2020-2021 in Australia. Her research around psychological safety in the boardroom is the topic of our conversation. A Harvard Business Review article tells us that the highest performing teams have one thing in common, and that thing is psychological safety. And that's the belief that you won't be punished when you make a mistake. However, Carolyn's research demonstrates that 45% of board members in Australia feel unsafe the majority of the time. So what's driving this? How do you have the type of robust and fierce conversations necessary in the boardroom whilst maintaining a high level of psychological safety? How do you effectively balance these two factors without falling into the trap of groupthink and fake harmony just for the sake of not upsetting others? Carolyn shares her perspectives from working with leaders and board members and shares what we can do individually as board members to create a psychologically safe environment and maintain sufficient and effective discussion and debate. Let's get into the conversation. Carolyn, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is my pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here, Lisa. Awesome. And I'm so glad that we're finally capturing one of our conversations for a bigger audience to hear. I know. It's it's almost been three years, maybe two years in the making around this topic. Yeah, a long time. And I do, I, I, I'm going to start with the elephant in the room question, and that is what on earth is psychological safety? Yeah, it's a great place to start. I think if I was to put it in terms of we want people to have a self-reflection moment, um, you know, ask yourself really simple questions. Um, have you ever been in an environment, in a, in a social setting where you felt like you couldn't speak up? Have you ever felt that just as you've been about to give an explanation, you've been cut off and, and told, you know, okay, we, we get it, we understand what you're saying and then move on? Um, you know, have you ever felt that, um, you've been basically asked for your opinion but no one's really listening to what you're saying and it's just all very piecemeal. Um, two, do you ever feel that, um, y- you know, that you've been passed over for opportunities, whether it be promotion or project leadership, um, simply because 
you know, for no no real reason. So, and when we start asking people those questions, um, generally 80% of people will say they've felt that way within the past two days. And, you know, so that's sort of saying that this is a regular occurrence. It's not something that's quite rare. Um, and if we're talking about the definition of that, then we sort of, I find the easiest way to describe that is there are four stages of psychological safety and, and we ask ourselves, do we feel included and do we feel part of the team? And that's number one. We then can move to number two, which is do we feel safe enough to actually ask questions and ask for help? And then we can move to stage three, which is more around do we feel safe enough to actually contribute and participate, like give our opinions and actually participate in conversation? And then finally we can move to a stage of psychological safety, which is more around being safe enough to challenge the status quo. So we can problem solve, we can initiate things, um, but importantly, we can actually challenge the status quo and go, no, we can do things better, so how do we go around doing those? Now, if you can do all of those things without that fear of I'm going to be humiliated, I'm going to be embarrassed or I'm going to be passed over or I'm punished in some way, then you have psychological safety. And um, if you don't, then then you're not, you're not in an environment that is really harnessing that collective intelligence of everyone around the room. So when we talk about outcomes in terms of organisations wanting I want some you know an organisation that's customer centric that's able to innovate and problem solve I want an organisation where we are harnessing all the intelligence and that we're diverse but we're actually inclusive where you can't get any of that without having psychological safety. Mm. From what you've said psychological safety seems to be one of those things that is I would say essential to a boardroom all the, those four stages, those four elements that you talk through, um, absolutely necessary for a board to have. So some of the data that you've come out with around your study that has wrapped up recently is frightening around how little psychological safety is actually existing in boardrooms um, around Australia. And we'll get into some numbers, but really what it showed me is that psychological safety is something that needs to be created intentionally. So how is it created? Yeah, great question. It, I think you're right. It is absolutely essential for our boardrooms. It's absolutely essential for our organisations. It's something that if we're really exhibiting due diligence, we should be measuring and monitoring. And the, the only way that you can create it is if we, if we think of a, a graph and on the vertical axis is trust and respect, and, and that's really what you need to be able to have intelligent conversations and to be have a, have a safe space for conversation in which you can um, take feedback, give feedback, but actually not leave the conversation. You've got safe conversation. The other is, um, you know, along the horizontal axis is more around the permission that you have to actually participate. So when we look at those three stages, do I feel like it's safe to participate as a team member to actually ask for help, to actually contribute, to actually challenge the status quo? So they're the sort of three different, um, I guess, elements that you have in terms of psychological safety. And so if we look at um, how do you create it, it's, 
it's really around how do we actually build trust and respect but also allow people the permission and autonomy to participate safely and how can we create that environment and from my perspective and certainly a lot of our training we start with you know we, we talk about how difficult it is to change culture but we still keep doing the same things the same way over and over again whereas our approach is understand the um yourself understand the emotional intelligence that you have but importantly how do we create safe conversations because they're the way that you actually impact relationship that's how relationship impacts on culture and that's how we we establish you know and can probably influence culture a lot better and a lot faster so um in terms of creating it that's that's what we've got to do we build trust we build respect for each other where we're not judging each other and we actually give people permission to do what they're there to do and value them in that role so it's not, it's not the case of, well, it could be, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not like you literally need to be given permission by, say, the chair of the board to, to do what I think is what a board member's role is and that's um, appropriately challenge and ask questions and all of that kind of thing. So is it that or is it permission in the way of if I act in a certain way and get a... Um, a positive response that that in itself is the permission per se or is it like what does that even look like in real life what are some examples maybe I think that's a that's a great example I think um if we're looking at permission it's it's around that level of safety that we have and the way you demonstrate that safety is is by experience it's by if if someone has managed to challenge the status quo how do we respond to that that's a really great example. And if you look at first-time board members that are actually trying to fit in and um, and want to, and actually we should be valuing their perspective because they're new to the board and that this is such a great moment um, because they come with a different perspective. They're not bound by the norms of around the table that, that might already be there or the organisation. Um, they're, they're the perfect ones, but they're also watching. They're kind of going, well, I, I don't want to miss this opportunity. I don't want to, you know, have them not like me or, or not respect me now. So now I need to actually remain a bit silent. So, um, but they're watching. They're watching the nuances around the room to see what is norm so that I can actually fit in. And that's where we need to monitor our behaviours um, and our feedback that we're giving, you know, it's those consequences. Um, we can have board members, as an example, that are really high in respect and trust but really low in permission to actually participate. And so a lot of the time that's around paternalism, for example, um, or, you know, sort of that um, I'm the dad here, I'm the, the authoritarian and um, I have a great deal of trust and respect for you but I'm going to micromanage you essentially. So that's an example of in organisations and on boards where you're, you're micromanaged um, so a great deal of trust and respect for someone, but actually we're not giving them permission to do what they what they want to do. On the other side of that scale is when you give someone a, a great deal of permission to participate, so you're giving them all of this freedom to initiate and problem solve and do all this work, but we take credit for their ideas and their, and what they do. And, you know, there's a lot of examples of that in organisations where Absolutely. someone else has taken the credit for their work. So, um or, you know, it was my great idea. Or so so those sorts of things happen all the time. And that's a that's an example of, yeah, go for your life. This person has expended so much effort and time and yet they've not got the recognition that they deserve for that participation. That means your trust and respect is is eroded. So and not, you know, reciprocated. Mm. 
So absolutely, they're, they're, they're the sort of, this, this line in the middle of those four stages is, is really um, one that is a slippery slope that can easily go into micromanagement and exploitation. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, the thing that pops into my head here, and it could be a curveball that I didn't prepare you for, uh, which I always like to do. Love those. <laughs> but you're safe here, Carol. I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is really around, and I may word this incorrectly, so I hope that this makes sense, is around that people show up to the boardroom based on like how they've grown up in a professional capacity, they were probably in a leadership role and the chances are that they're going to lead in the boardroom the same way that they were leading in a workplace setting, so a traditional Mm -hmm. workplace setting. Is that where this is stemming from, that they're just kind of the old way of doing things or the old style of, of management or leading people and they're just transplanting that methodology straight into a boardroom? Is that what you think is happening or, like, where is that coming from? You know, the, the research that we did with the, the benchmark, the psychological safety boardroom benchmark, we, we had all sorts of examples. Um, so we had examples of pe- feeling people feeling unsafe in the boardroom or unable to speak up because they felt like they owed someone loyalty who had brought them onto that board, you know, and that really surprised me and and that was a lot of the men that I was talking to, whereas we had others that felt unsafe because they felt like they were being stereotyped. So you have your marketing executive or who, who may have really great skills in governance but because their title was always marketing, that's not... That, that's stepping outside of the box as far as everyone else is concerned. So there's there were those sorts of things um, which basically said to them, you don't value me and you're really not optimising all of my strengths here and so I'm not feeling it safe because I'm actually feeling now that you're not getting my opinion and you're not getting a full deal of perspectives that we should be using to actually make critical decisions. Um, but, sure, it's my one of the best quotes that I've ever heard around conversations is that every sentence has history and that goes back to you know there's a conversation that's been had before where someone has said something out loud and they have been punished they have been humiliated they've been laughed at they've been told you know that they're stupid or silly or you know and that can go as far back as the classroom so yeah we've all got our own perceptions we've all got our own history we've all got our own cultures that that you know, create who we are when we when we sit at that boardroom. And oftentimes it's a lot of learned behaviour from organisations, which is part of the problem. Um, and I, But I think if we went to root cause of it, it's that we come to a boardroom table and we have different realities. And we talk about these different realities without ever making sure that we're all congruent. So we... We're always at a place, majority of the time, and sometimes up to 10 different realities, where we think we're all talking to the same thing, but we're not. And then we leave that boardroom and we all have 10 different realities of what the next steps were going to be or how that should have been recorded or how that should have been reported or, you know, um, or how that should be measured or how that should then be monitored. So for me, it comes back to um, some of the communication skills that I think we've really um, not valued enough in terms of upskilling in, in, the, in the past. 
um, 10 years or so, you know, and so now we've got this leadership crisis which has been going on for more than two decades and we're not closing that gap fast enough. And unfortunately, we've got hybrid work environments now. We've got a real, you know, we've been talking about the digital explosion. Well, now we've got even more with the hybrid work environment. And we've got all these other challenges, such as the regulatory environment that we're currently working in that COVID throws us into. We've got customers that are actually going, yeah, we're not putting up with this anymore. So, and we've got employees that are now going, you know what, it's actually worth it to quit. We're not staying here any longer. You know, there's better things. Why would we stay? Um, and from a board perspective, we've got issues because so many of us want those non-paid executive roles and, you know, that's decreasing every year how many volunteers or non-paid executives are actually willing to take these roles and be exposed to risk that they really can't afford to be exposed to by the other nine or, you know, 10, 11 people around the boardroom table. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's a combination um, of all that, you know, everyone has a different experience that they're bringing to that table. Um, but, but to me... The biggest issue is that we're not having that shared reality and we're leaving the boardroom with that unshared reality too and that's just creating those water cooler conversations, those conversations that might be out at the golf course, the conversations that might be in the car park and we're not actually, you know, getting some real congruence around that table, which is such a shame. Absolutely. And it's such... Um... It's so much a heart of so many issues that... And, and it can be easily avoided with just a simple conversation of everyone coming together and talking that through but I do want to I want to touch on this perception is reality sort of um not a concept it is what it is that's how we exist our world is our perception with psychological safety does everyone have sort of like their own perception of what is a I don't know, do you call it a good level of psychological safety or does everyone have a different threshold or like, because I would think that there would be circumstances where say half the board or the majority of the board may feel very psychologically safe. And then if you have a a couple of, of people or even the new people coming in, and it's an environment that is very candid, that is very um, robust, let's call it, that I could see for, for many people that would feel very psychologically unsafe. So how does that get reconciled? Yeah, it, it is a it's a personal evaluation. It's definitely a personal assessment. It's mm-hmm. and every brain is different, so every experience is different, and and therefore, yeah, everyone will have a different threshold or or what what allows me to feel safe in one environment will be different. And look, the from a leadership perspective, any leader and, and on a board, I would say that the chair is is that main leader. And funnily enough, it's it's in those conversations with the research, it was the company secretary that often identified issues prior to anybody else. Um, so, so that says a lot about our, our great company secretaries in being able to observe what's going on around the room whilst, you know, a chair might be trying to facilitate something. Um, but, yeah, it, so those so those thresholds are going to be different. The experiences are going to be different. Um, and, and even the research said that, you know, we, we had some experiences where we got to talk to multiple board members that were on, on a board um, to the whole board. Um, and I think that does come back to that reality of sometimes we actually don't know 
the impact we're having. Our intentions may be great. Our impact is not understood. And we don't have that self-awareness or the social awareness to actually understand when we're um, creating an issue for others. Um, that that was a that's a really big one. It's and and we really do need to be um, aware of well, what is considered a safe space and and how can we actually realize or, or monitor people's behaviors or how they might be responding to things and then to step back from that and not leave the conversation but actually stay within it but create that safe environment for everyone. And you're absolutely right. I think probably some of our most underutilized board members are the ones that are actually just joining a board for the first time that do come with these different perceptions and instead we're creating this environment that's very difficult for them to speak up where um you know where a ceo who, who may be reporting to the board or some of the leadership team that are reporting to boards and, and on those board positions um and some of the chairs and some of the other board members have addressed a problem and don't want to re recap it they don't want to look at a different perspective because we've already done that and I think sometimes time is our real our worst enemy in those sorts of um, situations as well because we don't want to take the time to recap or to, to think about what somebody else's perspective might have been in that mm-hmm. well sometimes it may be not conducive so sometimes it is necessary but you're right, if it's this consistent environment of that same behaviour, then it's a problem. But if it's every once in a while for, for a good legitimate reason. I'll give, yeah, and look, one, of, one great example of one of the interviews we had was a new board member to a credit union board um, basically went on and she noticed that the churn rate of, of staff was significantly high a lot higher than what she would expect. And she's she's been on a number of boards and she's definitely been in the banking industry for a number of years. And, um, and just through some conversations that we were having, she said, how can I raise this? You know, we're measuring engagement and, and the response that we're getting to questions is that, you know what, they're not regrettable leavers, it's okay. This is an actual okay churn rate to have. And um, she said, but, but I'm concerned. You know, this is a lot of money that we're losing. We're constantly having to recruit again. We're losing information every time we lose somebody. Um, and, and it's really not good for, for the environment of, of the staff anyway because we're constantly in training mode. Um, I think something some deeper than that, I think we should be looking at psychological safety, but I'm being convinced that engagement surveys are enough and that really we're, we're just excusing some of the behaviours. Um, and so we gave her a lot of information around what is psychological safety and she said, oh, you know what, I'm, I've only been there for three meetings. I probably can't raise this at least for another three or four more. And, and so that was kind of, so she was listening to the conversation. She was a very intelligent woman, but in no way did she feel like she actually had the ability to be able to speak up at that stage and go, no, we, you've been accepting an excuse that these people aren't regrettable, but how can we really accept a churn rate of over 50% and, and say that it wasn't? you know, that, that, that we don't have an issue. So I'm going to say something controversial, which may be good or bad. <laughs> Hindsight may tell. To me, that that highlights that in amongst all of this, there is a level of personal responsibility that we have to take upon ourselves as board members to to seize those moments where we may feel like we're wavering, where it may feel like we're not quote unquote allowed to speak up about something and actually do it 
And whether that's doing it in the boardroom setting or having a one-to-one meeting with the chair of the board and raising your concern directly with them, what, I mean, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> what, what level of responsibility do we ourselves, because you talk about it being responsible for um, the, the environment that we set in respect to others in the boardroom yep. and making sure that we're fostering and maintaining that psychologically safe environment. But if we're all opting out of doing something challenging, there's got to be something in that that just isn't congruent with psychological safety as a whole. Yeah. You know, I think there's two things we can do. One is from a chair's perspective, it's actually saying we need to be more curious. So when we bring someone on board, we need to recognise that they have different skills, different perceptions, that this is gold. So what can we do too? Like you, like you said, what do I need to do? Do I need to have a private conversation? But then how do we get that? Minuted. How are we missing out then on conversations that the whole board can can talk about? Um, so one is to to actually give them the you know on the agenda. So we, we want to listen to your perceptions. Let's look at some of the key issues that that we've got addressed and which of the top three that you would like to address with us that you think we we actually need to bring to the attention and discuss around the table. So that would probably be one way for me. I think you could still have a, a discussion as the chair. But it's, that's sort of assuming that the chair isn't sometimes the problem um, to actually taking ideas. And so does that mean that it's just going to be another dead-end conversation and they're not going to feel valued? So I think as a board as a whole, you're right, it's, it's everyone's responsibility to go, well, what have we missed? What are we not doing? How have some of our defensive practices in the past maybe allowed us to ignore some of the issues that have been right here, but we've, because of time, because of resources, because of our perceptions of priority, allowed it to actually fall down the wayside and and whereas they're seeing that this has a greater impact to more than just staff turn it's actually having an impact to the performance it's having an actual impact on the risk of everyone around that boardroom because how much longer can this keep being sustainable so so yeah I think we've all got a responsibility around the table to address that and yes from our own perspective I mean you we all have a, a due diligence obligation to actually raise these points. I think what people do, though, is that they're trying to get the maximum value out of that airtime that they might have. And so they're trying to make sure that when they finally do bring it up, that they're doing it in a way that has ticked all of those norms that they've been actually told, you know, that they've been observing for the last three months. And I think that's that's where we're losing some of our momentum because now you've you know, you're potentially delaying something that could be uh, an issue almost six months to 12 months down the track. Yeah. Um, That's an issue. I think we're going to have, um, you know, certainly from a psychosocial hazard perspective, this is an issue. Psychological safety is becoming a very big issue. And because people are not trusting the organisation's policies and procedures, then they're going directly to the Safe Work New South Wales, Safe Work Queensland, the tribunals, um, Fair Work, you know, they're going to other areas outside the organisation and therefore the organisation has lost control of that narrative and that story. Mm. So that also means that within the next, I don't know how long, depending on how good the regulatory environment is at the moment, but certainly from a Safe Work New South Wales, his you know, your potential and, and notice of your risk and that goes to every single person in authority within the business, including your, your board members. So 
Mm. That's that's becoming a, a a very topical conversation, and of course, we've just put in respect at work new legislation as well. So there's another element to that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how how do you um, how can boards still maintain the type of robust and fierce conversations that are needed in the boardroom whilst facilitating and maintaining this this psychological safety culture? I think it starts, one, with awareness of yourself. So what are you actually responding to and how are you responding to it? Um, You know, because as soon as you've given a poor response or you've behaved poorly in response to something, you've automatically set the tone that, Mm -hmm. okay, clearly we can't have a great discussion with them. Clearly we can't raise this issue around them that they've got a, it's, an emotional problem or it's a difficult conversation for them to have. So, so we've got to be really, I think, aware of what our own responses are and what our own triggers are. That way we can actually start regulating ourselves in terms of how we're responding to things. I think the second one is to then be able to identify when we're triggering a response in someone else and how they might be feeling uncomfortable and how can we actually bring them back into a comfort zone. And, and like I said before, what one of the most important things I think as an influencer is to make sure that we're actually all talking about the same thing. You know, if one person is talking about um, customer research and but it's actually branding research and we've all got these different perceptions of what this customer research is going to say but we actually um, don't know exactly what it is and then by the time the customer research comes out we're getting all these complaints because it didn't ask the questions we thought were going to be in it you know so let's make sure that our realities are all the same and that we're not using jargon or terminology where we actually haven't got really clear understanding of what we're talking about Um, so that means we need to all upskill in conversational intelligence all of us you know, it's it's not something that's ever going to be achieved. We're all excellent at it because as soon as we have a different person in the group, that changes it again. Okay. So, you know, understanding, to me, understanding the cognitive needs around the table. So we talk about board diversity in terms of gender. I talk about it in terms of their cognitive needs. So in one situation, you may have a team that um, wants to be highly innovative. But if our board is made up of those who are in high degrees of certainty, then we're never going to have an innovative culture around that boardroom table. You know, we're going to be continually struggling to get through policies, procedures, and and we're going to be totally risk-averse. So we need to make sure that our boards are actually have a different balance of cognitive needs around that table and that we're actually addressing all of them so that those people that have high certainty needs or high autonomy needs um, or high needs in significance and status to those that just are, are really concerned about shared values or equity, you know, that those needs are being met and that we're tailoring our communication so that they're getting all the all the communication or all the information that they need to be able to make a good decision. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things I think we need to be doing at the moment, but they're probably the, the ones that I would start with. On board, they believe that board meetings should be informed, effective, and uncomplicated. Imagine a solution that streamlines your board pack preparation, enhances board governance and information security, and improves collaboration and productivity. A board management solution that's easy to use from any device. 
Onboard provides just that solution and is the most easy to use board management platform available today. Respond quickly to changes and simplify difficult tasks that traditionally eat up board member time and resources. Track and execute action items with our task manager, build board packs faster than ever, send and receive targeted alerts and messages to keep everyone informed. Ready to explore how Onboard can help your board thrive? Visit bit.ly forward slash onboardau. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash O-N-B-O-A-R-D-A-U. All very good. Every board could benefit from that. (laughs) Um, But I'm interested because I'm seeing this along a spectrum how do you avoid a psychological safe culture that is all about false harmony, groupthink, and some of the what I feel are like negative outcomes that could come from well-intentioned people who are trying to build a psychologically safe environment but maybe go too far on that spectrum and move into, well, you can't say anything challenging because that upset um, Steve over there. And then if you say this in this way, you're going to upset Tracy over here. Like how do you avoid the negatives that could come from an overemphasis on everyone feeling okay, so to speak? Yeah, look, that's that's a very good question. Um, I think we need to clarify too that psychological safety isn't about nice and being nice and and being um, the nice person in the room or about making sure that everybody is agreeing to one thing. Psychological safety is actually just that environment that says we welcome challenge, we welcome innovation, we welcome the different ideas, perceptions, Um, experiences that you bring to the table so that we've really got this amazing pool of information from various sources, whether they be internal to the board but also external, and we're able to be very curious and then we're able to actually fill all those curiosity gaps in a way or seek more information to, to fill them. And it's about being able to have this intellectual friction, this debate that's able to go on without everyone taking personal offence to it. So that's why when we go back to that conversational intelligence, we need to be able to um, take feedback as well as provide feedback. And we need to be able to facilitate these discussions. And I have to say that's probably one of the things that didn't really come through clearly in in the research, that, that there isn't a great level of um, facilitation skills around the boardroom where you are able to bring all of those different opinions, um, hear them, but not necessarily know what to do with them and how to actually get some actual action as a result of that. And that's a, it's a really big skill, you know, that, that takes, especially when you can have people who are highly emotive around some certain topics, you know, and that can, that can differ between, you know, agendas all the time. So in one situation, you might actually feel very, very safe. A majority of the time you may feel very safe, but you know that there's a couple of people that might be triggered against certain things. And that might happen with a lot of not-for-profits, for for example, where you've got parents on the board who have 
children or, or relatives that um, that have lived experience and therefore they've got a real passion and the, a real one view of how things should be seen. So we can we can see that in a number of settings, um, and very well intended, you know, but but passionate because they're emotional about that. Um, so the one way you get around that is to be very accountable. And I think that's the other thing that's missing on our boards to the point where I think only 14% of our um, respondents said that they thought the board actually had true accountability for not just their performance but their behaviours. And that is really, really coming through very clearly from an organisational perspective where only 36% are actually trusting the decisions that are coming through from their board or their senior leadership teams, you know, in, in direct responses. So... Um, because they're they're really feeling the the lack of accountability that's coming through in terms of performance, but as well as behaviours. So for me, some of the things that they suggested is be very very clear about your roles and responsibilities all the way through the organisation. Link that to the strategic intent of the business, and then how that links to the purpose of the business. Um, there was a really low response or low. Um, so, again, I think it was only about 14% believed that the systems and processes there were to drive proper intentions. So in terms of um, people making decisions that are more around self-intent or self-interest as opposed to board or, or organisational um, intent. So, and they were saying, look, our systems and processes are not making sure that we have that accountability. So how do we get that accountability? Um so for me, it's been very clear about what those performance levels are and, and our levels of trust around the boardroom are very low. You know, I think mm. it's about two, two and a half out of ten in terms of levels of trust. Like that's atrocious. And it came back to, no, we believe the people that are making decisions around this table, A, it's not being made by the board, it's been made by, being made by select few, but there's a lot more self-interest being made here than actually for the good of the organisation. Um so, so what can we do to actually make sure that that doesn't happen? Because that's eroding, of course, the psychological safety when people know that that's happening. Um, so a strong need for accountability, a strong need for consequences, especially with behaviour that we're seeing. And, I mean, the fact that we have to put in a respect at work legislation seriously, that, that to me goes, really, we need to have this written down that it's not allowed before we can have a consequence. Um, so that's quite critical. Uh, clarity around roles and responsibilities, but also what I'm finding is that we have so many metrics that are conflicting within our business units and this is actually just, you know, ha happening at board level too. So we haven't actually got clarity around, well, here's our strategy. Now, how does that impact on each of those business groups and what are our goals for those groups and how are we actually using those metrics? So what I'm seeing a lot of is that we've got these dashboards that are absolutely useless. We're responding to things that are, um, that are really not needed to be responding to, responding to them um, because we're not measuring them cor correctly and we're not monitoring them in the right way. So, and, and psychological safety would be one of those. Um, engagement would be another one of those. Um, to production, production times, those sorts of things. So there's a lot of those where we just haven't got clarity around those smaller metrics that go all the way through the organisation that we need to focus on. So if you, we want psychological safety, we really need to have that accountability. So how do we measure it then? If, if psychological safety is very much, well, I don't know, seems to be very much an individual perception, 
how is it measured in a in a normal what we think of as a as a system that measures psychological safety how do you do that yeah so um, there's a few tools around, I mean, and there's a lot of free tools around, Safe Work Queensland, Safe Work New South Wales, you know, they've all got psychological safety assessment tools that you can use. Um, the, the people in science one that we use, um, we go probably into a little bit more detail because we want to understand the cognitive differences of your team. And if we understand those, then we know exactly what we need to do in terms of that communication and intervention to be able to get that cohesion. We know that leaders are 70% influence so we know that we need to focus on our leadership influence and and how do those managers actually facilitate in and in that case on a board how does the ceo um, influence that around the boardroom table so in terms of our tool we measure the the manager's influence on the team we measure the cognitive differences around the team we measure the trust diagnostic we measure psychological safety by asking those questions that we asked way at the beginning and, and a number of others um, it's not as simple as being able to say, do you feel psychologically safe? We need to put it into the context and, and look at how, how frequently we feel safe in, in, an, in a setting. Um, and then we need to train on it. So we need the ability to have, I think, a tool that says, if I've only got $100, where am I going to get the greater impact? And as an example, just after our first COVID lockdown with Victoria, um, you know, so people were coming out of lockdown after three or four months and a lot of the organisations we were talking to were saying, you know, look, we've really lost a lot of engagement because we were having a lot of these toolbox meetups or um, face-to-face meetups plus we had frequent interaction. I think we need to do a whole lot around socialising and barbecues and all these social activities. And when we actually had a look at it, the Victorian teams came out really, really strong in that. They actually failed in areas of um, cognition around uh, equality because they were looking at performance appraisals that were due to be done that hadn't been done or they hadn't actually had theirs done but they were supposed to do 360 degree on their leaders and what they were seeing was just this sense of unfairness or they would have... Um, what they considered some slots in the field, getting paid because of their experience and their age, but they had all the younger guys doing all the hard work because they had the muscle and the, you know, the patience. And so they were, but they were getting paid, you know, three times more. Or some of the older guys would know how to work the system to get the after-hours work. You, you had younger ones that needed that work because some of their wives had been put off during COVID. So there was a real fairness and equity that we went. Well, it doesn't matter. You, you can have all of these events, but no one's going to show up. So if we're going to spend the $100, let's spend it where we actually think it's going to have the greater impact and let's get these things out of the way first. So that's what we do for organisations and we do that around the boardroom table as well. Um, but, but you can, you know, at a smallest element, we know that from an organisational experience perspective, meetings have a great impact on the experience of employees, leaders, board members. So why not evaluate them by asking a question at the end that says, were you able to speak up? Were you able to raise, you know, or object to any of the topics there? Did you think, you know, give the rating of a meeting out of 10 in terms of, you know, were you satisfied with the way this meeting was facilitated? Um, so, you know, maybe five or three or four easy questions that you could just do almost as a pulse survey is to say, how can we improve this meeting? What could we do better to make this safer for you to speak up? And, uh, you know, you might even just ask that question and ask them to, to do some text and just put in their own, you know, 
because I think that's what we need to be asking. So even if, if we did one thing, it would be to, to ask that question at the end of the meeting. What could we do to make you feel safer in this meeting so that you are able to speak up, to challenge and to actually optimise the value that you bring to this table? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I could see how uh, regularly checking in at the end of board meetings um, could be helpful too. I, I mean, the greatest irony is if you're all sitting around the table and the chair just goes, oh, did you all feel safe? Like... <laughs> And no one does. They're not going to really speak up there and then, no. uh, which is sort of further um, incentive to do those maybe anonymised annual reviews, if not more regularly, of how the board members are perceiving the board meetings going and and are they ticking those boxes around psychological safety and and is the environment being set that I feel that I can speak up and be candid and all of the other bits and pieces that we need around that, the role of a board to to make sure it's done. Um, But also another part of me just, I I just, I worry that people... um, Obviously, here goes something else controversial. Why not? I'm on a roll. (laughs) Is that we see a lot of people get very offended and triggered by things. The boardroom is not a place to go if you want to feel comfortable, if you want to feel warm and fuzzy, if if you want to um, have a cushy job. Like you said, there's a huge level of accountability Um, when things go wrong, especially in our larger corporations, they go wrong, they go very publicly wrong. So it's going to be very critical. It's going to be very uncomfortable. To that end, do you think boardrooms need to come with a bit of a warning label? (laughs) I love that question. It's, um, we definitely, you know, I I think organisations definitely need a warning label. I think um, boardrooms as part of that organisation should come with a warning label. Um, You know, to me, if we're looking at due diligence and you're not measuring and monitoring psychological safety, you don't know what your future exposure is going to be to a potential claim. You don't know what your future exposure is going to be to a poor decision. Um, And I think if we looked at the benchmark survey where people assess themselves, you know, in their own team saying, well, only 25% of the decisions we're currently making are highly effective, that to me says, holy crap, I am absolutely exposed and from an insurance perspective mm-hmm. I wonder if it becomes more difficult more expensive and if there'll be some boards where they'll be asked will we want to do a psychological safety assessment first because this will actually from an insurance perspective give me an indication of what our future risk is coming forward from an organizational perspective as well if I was doing an merger and acquisition and they didn't include a psychological safety assessment of the company I'm about to acquire I'd be going why not um, and, and why can't we get that? Or what what have you used? Because we, you know, that you could be actually biting off uh, multi million dollar claims that would be coming in the next six to twelve months. Yeah. So for me, absolutely, psychological safety to me is your warning label. It is your what are you? What is your score out of ten, or a hundred, or whatever you know score people want to use? Um, but to me, yeah, you know, we have. 
you know, our red, orange and our green and quite often we've got organisations in red that um, that you go, well, if, if you're about to sit on this board, you could be open to the next six months of 6 or 7 or 30% or in the case of someone who's got, oh, it doesn't matter, they're only um, non-regrettable levers, <laughs> you're about to be hit with a whole lot of lawsuits within the next six months. Well, I also, so, the, the thing that also hits me um is a big uh, concern around board members, company directors' duty of care obligations and how that may end up eventually translating into this kind of context. A lot of talk about culture, impact on business. Like these just scare me on that level as well. Yeah, look, to me, we, we look at our and put so much focus on our training, on understanding a balance sheet. And, you know, the survey came through that said, you know, 25% of our, our strategic decisions are highly effective. But when we asked them about their people and culture decisions, only 13% were highly effective. So, yeah, when I'm looking at, at scoreboards and about due diligence and my duty of care, knowing that bullying and harassment comes under psychological safety, the cost of mental health as a part of, you know, that's, they're all lag indicators. Your workplace health and safety claims are all lag indicators. So if we want to look at a, um, a lead indicator of how effective our decision making is going to be, uh, our customer centricity, whether we get repeat business or not, um, their future risk, then psychological safety is the one figure that we should understand really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, and, yes, yeah, so from a, from a duty of care, from a due, due diligence, from a workplace health and safety in terms of psychosocial hazards, which is just as important as our physical, um, it all starts with psychological safety, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, yeah, if there was one figure I'd be looking at, um, I think I'd probably be looking at the psychological safety figure before I'd be looking at some of my balance sheet because you're you've got an equal opportunity to being behind bars for either one of those. So, um, and yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot more around the regulatory environment that will be happening, and yeah, um, you know we're sort of just starting to put some focus on there. Um, which certainly from a benchmark perspective, when I had a look at the feedback from everyone who are yeah, they're, they're sort of saying, no, we could be doing a lot better and we want to do better. That was one thing that came through so clearly that people are coming to the boardroom and, and taking leadership positions because they want to make a difference. They have great intentions, um, but they, they just feel like they're, they're being underutilised. Yes, probably because of the other people around the table that are already there. Yeah, and look, you know, from a leadership perspective, you know, boards are exposed. You know, the one reason I would be making sure as a board that I had a um, a leadership and an organisational psychological safety score is because if people are sanitising the reports that are coming up to the board because they think that they're, they want to see something that's positive, Oh my God! You know you've you've just been exposed to an absolute cluster going forward because all because they think they're they're telling you what they want to hear. Um, and, and anecdotally, we hear some things saying that you know some of our leadership team are, are continually doing that because they don't think the board need to know or they think the board need to know this um, from our government departments, from our non for profits. It's yep. 
all over. So for me, that is where I see the biggest gap and the biggest way that our board members can be blindsided, that if we haven't created that environment of trust with our leadership team who are giving us the reports that we need to be able to make decisions and to actually prioritise decisions and interventions, then, then we've got exposure to risk that we don't even know about yet. Yeah, and you don't know that you don't know because no one's told you. So no one's told you. you need to be, yeah, very aware of that. And that goes back again then to so how are we handling when a, when a leadership member talks to us and gives us, a, you know, information that is not congruent to what we believe we're delivering or not congruent to what we think is happening you know, are we blaming them? Are we are we actually creating an environment that allows them to actually speak honestly and freely and you all start troubleshooting and initiating problem solving from that point? So I think we've got to look at, again, what have we, um, you know, the, the biggest influence that we have as a board is what we decide to ask questions about, investigate, question, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's how we determine and that's how we're sending a trigger or a response to our leadership team and our organisation about what's important to us. So if we're continually asking questions about the balance sheet but we're not asking anything about our people, about our culture, about our psychological safety, then our message is we only care about the numbers Mm -hmm. and only in terms of what the revenues are and and that we're not really looking at the cost of acquisition and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, So that's where we have the you know, what messages are we unconsciously sending out to our leadership team about how they want to receive reports? Mm. So what else can board members do to um, individually help create that psychologically safe environment and maintain sufficient and effective discussion, debate and accountability of the management? To me, it's um, start with yourself, like start doing upskilling, Start with conversational intelligence, start with actual emotional intelligence training in terms of understanding how your brain works, how you respond to things. Um, uh, Look at how the social interactions, you know, there are some really great neuroscience and leadership courses that are around that are fabulous for understanding the social and emotional intelligence that happens. Um, you can go down to the lengths of actually getting a psychological safety assessment of, of your board. To me, looking at the benchmarks and looking at well, what are you actually discussing in board meetings and what questions are you actually asking your leadership team, to me that's a really big indicator of where your priorities are. So if psychological safety isn't on there, I'd probably get it on there. Um, and, you know, how are you prioritising your agenda? What is what is number one on there? So have a look at what the way that that agenda is being run. And if you haven't got people um, up there as number one in terms of physical safety and psychological safety, then to me that's that's a huge risk for you. Mm, so critical. And, but so simple, simple ways to, to start building that, flexing that psychologically safe muscle. Yeah. Yeah, and be curious. Don't be afraid to ask questions. I think don't ask questions for the sake of hearing the answer that you already know. Ask questions because you're actually genuinely curious and you genuinely want to make a difference. Um, In terms of accountability and driving that, it's how do my policies and procedures and our flow of information actually support really good critical decision-making? Um, and I don't think we've ever really looked at that. We look at policies and procedures in terms 
oftentimes in protecting the board, but in fact, are they actually creating a psychologically unsafe environment instead? Um, because one of the things is once you have a highly psychological safe environment, the need for governance actually drops off because you, that's that's not you're not trying to cover anything up. You're, you're actually trying to make the best decisions you can possibly make. So even from an organisation, the, the higher the psychological safety, the less you need those policies and procedures to enforce things. Um, but for me, what, what we're not doing well is, is those behaviours. We're not following up on those behaviours and making them really critical and, and having strong consequences to poor behaviour. That's always the kicker, right? Every every organisation, every board says we have all these values and this is our culture. And then when I say, well, what happens when someone breaches a value or goes against the culture? Nothing. I get crickets. Yeah. So, and the things I often hear is, uh, you can't get rid of me. It's not in the constitution. You're like, what? Oh, you you mentioned a code of a code of conduct, but it's not actually referenced anywhere else, and you you can't do anything about that. Um, so we get little things like that. Um, to well, you didn't outline it. You know, there there have been cases in organisations, uh, you know, where because it wasn't specifically mentioned that yeah, we don't want you to sit there watching porn on your work computer. Well, where does it say that in my policies and procedures that I'm not allowed to do that? So, you know, there's all sorts of um, issues like that 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 are still going on a little bit. So having those policies and procedures to support accountability is really critical. And in some cases that means going back to the drawing board, going have spend some time, maybe instead of making it a one day a year, you actually do strategy quarterly. You know, most of the companies that we're working with at the moment, they don't have three-year to one-year strategic plans anymore. They've got quarterly strategic plans where they're having to move and shape yeah. things really quite regularly um over the past 12 months i think we've done more realignments in strategy than anything else because we have realized that our roles and our responsibilities between our staff between our board members are very different between our um our authority and our decision making authorities are too slow um you know one of the things that came through really clearly was we looked at, I think it was 2.6 out of 10 people had trust in the leadership team and the board members. Um, but when you look down at frontline teams, that jumped to like 7, seven out of 10, you know, really different. If we looked at responsiveness of organisations, there was a huge difference in that as well. So um, our perceptions of how we're performing and how we really are performing from a frontline perspective are very different and we need to start understanding those gaps as well. What, what is the reality there as opposed to what we believe is actually happening? Mm. Fascinating. A lot of work to do for many boards, I can tell, and organisations. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, I, I think whilst it's a lot of work, it's actually putting the effort in the right place for once. I actually feel like we've come a full circle where we've tried all of these different things and um, and I saw it in customer experience as well. You know, we, we tried a lot of different things and a lot of money has been spent on customer and consumer behaviour. So it's almost like we're finally spending the same amount on our employees and, and our organisational behaviour. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of, it, it's great. But I think the thing that I love about it is that if we spend the right amount of attention here, then it's you know, because of the correlations that we've found in terms of our quality of decision-making, customer experience, and so many of the other dashboards that we have that 
you know, we've found the lead indicator. Everywhere else we've kind of been working on the lag indicators. So for once we're actually going, well, well now we're putting focus here. I think it's actually going to be easier because of the flow-on effect is, is immediate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this research that you've done and, and the white paper or the, the report that you've come out with, um, incredibly valuable, fascinating, illuminating information in there with some indicators on how organisations, board members can work to build a more psychologically safe environment. How do people get their hands on this report? Yes, yeah, so uh, on the website, they can um, visit and purchase the white paper. Um, I think there's a free downloadable presentation as well if they want to um, get a copy of that. So that's on the 6Ps website, www.6Ps.com.au. They are also, everyone's happy. I'm really open to conversation, feedback, and um, and just having a chat about it. Um, so carolyn at 6ps.com.au is the email address, so always willing. We are also running in-house boardroom briefings. So if you want to actually just have a briefing with your board, that is uh, non, you know, you don't have to get an assessment done, but you might just want to actually inform your board. Um, I think our lawyer friends call it the brown trouser type of uh, awareness training for boards. So, you know, we're happy to take that through because sometimes looking at the responses of others and actually looking at some of those case studies and, uh, you know, it kind of allows people to to view their own situation in a safe way. Um, so, so we're doing those as well and, of course, with um, information coming out around this. And we've also got a legacy leadership book, which has just been released as well, which looks at, right, how, you know, answers a lot of those questions around how do we create that organisation of legacy leaders that are actually leaving organisations, you know, in a better way than the way they inherited it. But we've also got that great deal of succession planning coming up of good leaders that are emerging that are actually all about positive impact as well. So, um, and of course, psychological safety is one of the foundations of that and how do we achieve that within organisations. So, Yeah. Awesome. And if people want to connect with you directly, I know you've left your email address, but how else could they connect with you? Yeah, happy for people to contact me on my phone as well, mobile 0437 8222142. That email in the first instance is is good and um, and we can set up an appointment. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, The work you've done is necessary and vital for boards. I hope it, it positively impacts many boards, many organisations and many groups of people around Australia and hopefully the world. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time today with the listeners. Uh, Thank you. No, it was good. Great discussion. I love the challenging ones. They're great. (laughs) I've got way more controversial questions (laughs) for you uh, in in good time, Carolyn. Thanks again. Um, I appreciate you being here. Pleasure. What an illuminating conversation. I hope that this has stimulated your thinking around how you and your board can intentionally build and foster a culture that enables a high perception of psychological safety in order to facilitate those robust conversations that need to happen for boards to be able to make better decisions. You can find all of the links that Carolyn mentioned in this episode to her breakthrough research on boardroom psychological safety and to connect with Carolyn directly 
in this episode's show notes at getonboardaustralia.com.au forward slash podcast. If you haven't already, I invite you to subscribe, rate and review the Board Shorts podcast on your favourite podcast app. And please feel free to share that you're listening and what your takeaways are from this episode on social media using the hashtag Board Shorts Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to talking with you in the next episode. The Board Shorts Podcast is powered by Get On Board Australia, the destination for aspiring and new board members, helping you to get on board and thrive in the boardroom.